Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open to Titus chapter 3. We've been in the book of Titus for six weeks now, and what the book of Titus is, is that it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church planter, to Titus, who is in a place called Crete. And if you remember what we saw in the second week when Scott Rieger preached, what we saw was that Paul is writing to Titus, telling him, encouraging him, and instructing him to put into order, to set what was left, to make right what was left undone, to put into order what's still a bit chaotic, to make healthy what's still a bit unhealthy in this small group of Christians in this place called Crete. And so uh, Crete was not known for being a really nice place. Crete did not make the list of like top 100 places or top 10 places to live in the ancient world, right? It wasn't a nice place. It wasn't a place where you could go and you necessarily want to raise a family. It wasn't the place where you would have nice neighbors and by and large, the neighborhoods were good and the schools were great. Like that wasn't Crete. In fact, what we saw in week three was that one of Crete's very own prophets, so one of their, one of their very own public figures said that Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. One of their own people. So this is not exactly what you would call the morality capital of the ancient Near East. And what Paul has been describing up to this point in the book of Titus has been, what should it look like for Christians to live faithfully in a place like this? And specifically what he's been talking about is what should it look like, what should the life and the conduct of Christians look like in their home and in the church? What should it look like in the home? And what should it look like in the church. And now what we're going to see here in Titus chapter 3 is that Paul is going to go not just what does it look like to live as a Christian in the home? What does it look like to live as a Christian in the church? But what does it look like to live as a Christian in a fallen society? What does it look like to live as a Christian in society? And our text this morning is going to answer three questions. Three questions. The first one is how should Christians live in society? How should we live in society? The second question is why should Christians live this way in society? So not just how should we live, but why should we live this way in the midst of a fallen society? And then question number three is what gives us the power to live this way in society? If we understand how we're supposed to live, if we understand why we're supposed to live this way, then what in the world, what resource do we have as believers to actually be able to live this way in society. So first, how should Christians live in society? Titus 3, verse 1. Remind them, so this isn't a totally new paradigm, right? You don't remind someone of something they didn't know, but they've known this before. Remind them, I just buckle up, to submit. Okay. You get a little tense there. You know, to submit, are you kidding? Submit? Like submission, under mission. That means that I'm not in charge all the time of everything in my life and in our world. Remind them to submit, getting a little more uncomfortable, to who? To rulers and authorities. Paul, have you lost your mind? Are you kidding? Like, Paul, haven't you read the news? 
Didn't you see the, the clip on, on YouTube, right? Like, don't you follow so-and-so on social media? Oh, let, let, Paul, let me send you this article. Let me send you this podcast. Let me send you this soundbite. And maybe, Paul, maybe you would actually be informed enough about the government, about the society that you're in. Who in the world are you to, to, su- to suggest such an audacious thing, to submit to the rulers? Do you have any idea what society the Cretans are? Do you know how messed up the government is. Now, Paul wasn't unaware of the political climate. And he wasn't unaware of the nature of humanity and its corrupting effects within social institutions. Even the Greek historian Polybius once said that it was impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. Paul's not unaware of the situation. He's not unaware of the corruption that exists within the world that he is existing in, within the world that he is encouraging Titus to tell believers to live in. But here he is urging Titus to remind Christians to submit to the ruler's and the authorities. And if there was any question about what he was saying, if it wasn't clear enough, he then says, to obey. Submit to the rulers and authorities and obey them. In other words, what he's saying is that the attitude that Christians should have towards rulers and authorities, the attitude that Christians should have towards their bosses, towards their police officers, towards their mayors, towards their governors, and even towards their presidents is an attitude of submission that is displayed in actions of obedience. An attitude of submission that is displayed in actions of obedience. Now, my guess is that at this point, we're only four minutes in, and some of you are probably already making your list of reasons why you don't need to do this today. You're already making your reasons. Like, but can I just stop you for a second? Can you just stop making your list? Stop writing the email that you intend to send me later this afternoon, okay? All right? jherring at candeochurch.com. Send it. That's fine. But can I just encourage you for a second? Can I just challenge you? to be more eager to find ways to obey what Scripture explicitly teaches, be more eager to find ways to obey than you are eager to find ways to avoid doing what Scripture teaches. Be more eager to find ways to obey what the Scripture explicitly teaches than you are eager to find ways and reasons to not do what it explicitly says. Yes, there certainly is a sense where our submission to earthly authorities cannot be at the expense of our, of our obedience to God's commands. Yes, absolutely. That's the asterisk that overrides all of this. We even, uh, if you remember in the fall, we were in the book of Daniel. So go all the way back to Exodus chapter 20. What does God say? He says, don't have any other gods before me. Don't make an idol and bow down and worship it. And then so what we saw in the book of Daniel was that when King Nebuchadnezzar sets up a statue, an idol, and tells everyone to bow down and worship it, there are Daniel and his friends standing in defiance to the governing authorities who are instructing them to do something that is explicitly against God's command. Absolutely. So God is our ultimate authority to whom we pledge our ultimate allegiance. That is true. And at the same time, 
Romans chapter 13 is also true, which says, it'll be up on the screen, let everyone submit to the governing authorities. Why? Since there is no authority except from God and that the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. You see, here's what's true, is that the way that you view and respond to authority actually reveals what you believe about God. The way you view and respond to authority does not primarily reveal how in touch with society you are, does not ultimately reveal how, uh, how attuned to political sciences you are, it does not ultimately an indication of how well-read or how listened you are in the things of what's going on. What it's ultimately a display of is what you believe about God. Is President Biden the president because of votes or because of God? And you might say, are you saying we shouldn't vote? I'm not saying that. You might go, well, what about my vote? Does that, does that mean that like, that my contribution, like we have the freedom to vote? Like, doesn't that do something? And I go, yeah, but we're very good at believing half of Proverbs 16, What's the first half say? The lot is cast into the lap. Or another way to say it is that the dice are rolled. Or another way to say it would be the votes are cast. Absolutely. Yeah, what we do matters, Right? But don't only believe half of Proverbs chapter 16 because it says the lot is cast into the lap. You rolled that dice, you cast that vote, you, def you did that definitely, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You rolled that dice, you cast that vote, you made that decision, you did that action, absolutely, you did that. But lest we overestimate our authority in the world, God is the one who ultimately determines the outcomes. And because God, in his ultimate authority, appoints earthly authorities, we submit to those authorities and Christians should obey those authorities as an expression of our submission to and obedience to God. We don't submit to authorities because we love those authorities. We submit to those authorities because we love God who appointed those authorities. So remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. So don't just submit, don't just obey, but also be ready for every good work. Don't just passively obey authority, but actively engage with good works in society. Be ready for every good work. Set yourself up, set your schedule up, set your finances up, set your, set your physical aptitude up as much as you can to be ready to serve others, to be a good to the society in which you live. And then verse two, man, he just keeps going, doesn't he? To slander no one. What, is, what does slander mean? It means to attack the good name and reputation of someone. So notice two things here. One, slander no one. So it seems as though what Paul is doing is he is broadening out the, the, uh, the context, the group of people that he's talking to, submit to and obey authorities. Slander no one. 
which by the way means that the phrase, let's go Brandon, should never come out of the mouth of a Christian. Jay Herring at candeochurch.com. Okay. <laughs> but he doesn't, say, he doesn't just say, don't slander authorities. Well, that's certainly in view. He says, slander no one. You see, one, one, thing, that, one thing that we really love in our country, and, and I'm, not, I'm not bashing this at all, is our freedom of speech. I think that's a great thing. Uh, I think there's a lot of biblical principles actually within that. Um, compulsion is not great. Uh, we weren't compulsed into believing Jesus Christ. And so I think freedom of, of speech is absolutely wonderful. But one thing that can happen in the life of a Christian is that we can, we can so value freedom of speech that we actually forget that we, in Christ, have been given the freedom of restraint. Uh, we don't have to say everything we think. We don't have to say everything we feel. So don't slander anyone. So to slander no one, to avoid fighting. In other words, what is Paul saying here? What Paul's saying is here is that being a Christian should radically change the way that you speak about people and should radically change the way that you interact with people. It should change the way you speak about people. Don't slander anyone and avoid fighting. It should radically change the way that you interact with people. So don't do these things, right? That, if these are the negative exhortations of Titus 3, then the question is, well, if we're not supposed to do that, what are we supposed to do? Well, I'm glad you asked because Paul keeps going on and he says to avoid fighting. And then verse two, second half, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. All people. All people. Not just people you like, not just people you agree with, not just people who think like you, who sound like you, who look like you, who have the same preferences that you have, that believe what you believe. Show kindness and gentleness to all people. So, how should Christians live in society? Christians should live in society with respect towards authorities and kindness towards all people. There's a reason why Paul said at the very beginning, beginning remind them. At this point, you go, I've heard that probably since I was a child. But don't we all need a reminder? We should respect authorities and be kind towards all people. That's how we should live. But then the second question, why should Christians live this way in society? Not just how should we live, why should we live this way? Look at verse three. Four, because, we should live this way because we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. In other words, what Paul is saying is that don't forget that those who you want to slander, those who you want to fight, those who you see as your social enemies, don't forget that they are not as different than you as you would like to think. In fact, apart from God's grace, you were or you would be everything you hate about everyone else. Apart from God's grace, you were, or you would have been everything you hate and more. 
about the people that you want to slander and the people you want to fight. And so why should Christians conduct themselves in a fallen society in this way? It's not only because that we were just like them, but also, look at verse four. So you were this way, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. I, according to his mercy. Do you see what that means? It, it does not say out of his mercy. Do you notice the difference? If you walk up to Bill Gates and you ask him for money, one, ask him for more and then give the rest to me. But then secondly, but if you ask Bill Gates for some money and he gives you $1,000, he has not given to you according to his wealth. He has given to you out of his wealth, but not according to it. You see, God doesn't give to us just out of his mercy. He has given to us according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and the renewal and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This is who you were, but this is what God did for you. And I just have to wonder, how much of your disdain for other people, for people who don't think like you, who don't look like you, who don't act like you, who don't believe what you believe, who don't prefer what you prefer, how much of our disdain for others is actually a result of forgetting who we were and of not understanding who we would be apart from God's grace toward us? The great 1800s preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he puts it beautifully this way when he says, eyes that have wept over our own sin will always be most ready to weep over the sins of others. If you have judged yourselves with candor, you will not judge others with severity. You'll be more ready to pity than to condemn, more anxious to hide a multitude of sins than to punish a single sinner. I will give little for your supposed regeneration if there is not created in you a tender heart. You see, when you're gripped by God's grace toward you, what that grace does is it reminds you of who you were or who you would be apart from that grace, which means that we should now not view others with contempt, but with compassion. I was talking to a, a salt student one night after salt company, this was a couple of years ago, and um, she's a student leader and, she, and I was asking how she's doing and she's telling me about some conflict she's having with her brother. And she keeps going on and on about all the things that he had said to her and all the things he had done. And, and she was really upset about it and really angry and disgusted towards him. And, and she couldn't believe that he would say these things and she couldn't believe that he would do these things and she couldn't believe that he would act this way toward her and her family and all that stuff. And after she kind of unloaded all of this, um, I, just, I asked her, I said, hey, this would be helpful for me. Is, is your brother a Christian? And she almost laughed because, I mean, all the, she's like, he is, he's as far away from being a Christian as you could imagine. And as kindly as I could say it to her, and 
And I tried so hard to not minimize the hurt that she was feeling because these things were terrible, absolutely. But as kindly as I could say to her, I said, hey, something like, hey, what you've experienced is terrible. And I am so sorry like that you've gone through that, that you're going through that, that your family, this is just not a great situation. Can I just suggest that maybe one of the reasons why this is more difficult it's difficult, but perhaps it's a little more difficult because you're expecting your brother to act like a Christian when he's not at all. He's not even claiming to be a believer. And it was like a light bulb went off in her head. And she's like, you're absolutely right. Yeah, all these things were terrible. But, it's been, but my frustration has been compounded by the fact that I'm expecting an unbeliever to act like a believer. You see, I wonder, how would we respond to our governing authorities? How would we respond to others in society if we stopped looking at them through the lenses of political parties or social classes and started looking at people not as enemies, but as people with actual souls who will spend an eternity somewhere? You see, isn't it true that the, that the doctor that you want is the person who once had the affliction they're treating you for? Isn't that the case? That the doctor who has gone through what you are currently going through, like they don't just understand it at an intellectual level, but they understand it at an experiential level, which means that they enter in at a different level, that they enter in with, with certainly a, a, a level of sobriety, and clarity about what you are actually about to face, but also with a level of gentleness and compassion. Because they don't just know the answer to your problem. They know what the process actually looks like. They've lived what you're currently going through. You see, the grace of God frees us to be utterly realistic about who we were, to not sugarcoat it, to not be naive about it, that before the grace of God in Christ, whether you were a reckless unbeliever or whether, or whether you were a self-righteous unbeliever, that apart from the grace of God, that we were under his wrath, destined for hell, enemies of God, dead in our sin. It allows you to be radically, utterly realistic about who you were or who, or who you would be apart from his grace. And it enables us to be utterly gentle and utterly patient with those who have yet to receive the same grace that we've been given. So how should Christians live in society? With respect toward authorities and kindness towards all people. Why should Christians live in this way in society? It's because you too were once an enemy of God and yet in his kindness, he saved you. So number three, what gives us the power to live this way in society? I'm not suggesting that this is easy, but because of God's grace, it is actually possible. So what gives us the power to live this way in society? There's a word here that Paul uses in this passage that is used only one other place in the New Testament. And it's that word there in verse five. Look at verse five. He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of, and here's the word, regeneration. 
regeneration. And that word that's only used one other time in the New Testament is the Greek word palingenesia. And what it literally means is recreation. It literally means regenesis, a new genesis, a new beginning. And what this Greek word was commonly used in the ancient world as was, it was to refer specifically to a form of philosophy that the Stoics held to, a Stoic Greek philosophy. And what these philosophers believed was that all of history was cyclical and was not going anywhere. And so imagine the way that we tend to think of history is we tend to think of history as a timeline, right? History is linear, it is progressing, it is advancing, it is hopefully improving, and it is moving forward in one direction. That's the way that we think of time. The, these Stoic philosophers did not see history as a line, but instead saw history as a circle. That history is not necessarily like advancing somewhere into the future, but that history is cyclical over and over and over again. That history doesn't really progress or go anywhere, but instead, every so often, that the universe would get so old, so decrepit, so broken, that there would be a cataclysmic refresh by fire, where everything would be destroyed and everything, and that there would be a palingenesia, a regenesis, a new creation over and over and over. And they believe that this happened time and time and time again. And what's amazing here is that the only other time that this word palingenesia is used in the New Testament is actually used by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 19. And the context of what's happening in this conversation in Matthew 19 is that Jesus has just encountered the rich young ruler. He has called the rich young ruler to sell everything that he has to follow him. And he walks away disappointed. And now Peter turns to Jesus just after this episode. He says, you said that it's difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. You said that that's difficult, but look at us. We have sold everything we have. Like we've done what you commanded these people to do. Like what's, what's in it for us now? What do we get? To which Jesus responds, Matthew chapter 19, he says, truly I tell you, in the renewal, in, in the palingenesia of all things, when the son of man sits on his throne, you'll, you who have will followed me, who will sit on our own thrones, you'll judge the 12 tribes, all that stuff. Do you see what Jesus is saying though? He's taking this word from Stoic Greek philosophy and he's using it to refer to not, the, to not a palingenesia, not this constant cyclical recreation by fire cycle of the universe that the Greeks understood. He didn't say a palingenesia, he said at the palingenesia, at the, the one, the one that is coming, the renewal of all things, when one day everything will be made new and everything is recreated. It's not, a, it's not yet here, but it is coming that one day Jesus is saying, I will return and there will be a new creation, a palingenesia of all things. And then what Paul has the audacity to do in Titus chapter three is to take this same word that Jesus uses to refer to a future coming kingdom and he has the audacity to say that when you believe in Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit pours out a foretaste of a future palingenesia on you right now. We, we love stories of time travel. Going back in history, going forward in history, you see what Paul is promising is nothing less than time travel. He's saying that this kingdom that Christians look forward to in the future has actually been given to us in seed form now. 
Imagine that you win uh, $100 million. Maybe that's what Bill Gates gave you when you asked him for money. $100 million, but it's going to be paid out over 10 years, right? When does your life change? It changes at that first check, doesn't it? $100 million over 10 years. I'm not great with math, but I think that's $10 million a year. When does your life change? It doesn't change at the last payment. It changes at the first. And what Paul is saying is that when you believe in Jesus Christ, you don't just get inner peace. You get nothing less than a foretaste of the kingdom of God right now. That the Holy Spirit has put a down payment of the future kingdom into our life right now. I think most often, it's, it's pretty unavoidable actually, but most often what happens when you come to Jesus is that generally most of us, when we first come to Jesus, we come to him with an agenda, right? We come to him with an agenda. Like our life isn't generally going the way we want. It's not really happening the, the way that we've, you know, thought out. We have an agenda that we would like Jesus to help us with, right? Like if you're sad, you want Jesus to make you happy. If you're weak, if you have like a weak identity, you want Jesus to give you a stronger identity. If you're anxious, you want Jesus to give you peace. If you're addicted to something, you want Jesus to to give you sobriety. You have an agenda, right? Like here's what Jesus can help me out with. But what Paul is saying here is that when Jesus comes into your life, you actually have no idea what you're dealing with. You have no clue. You have your agenda, but you have no idea the extent to which the regenerating power, the palingenesia of the kingdom of Christ will come into your life. Because when you come to Jesus, it's not like you're inviting a guest into your house, right? When you invite a guest into your house, you get to decide like where they go basically, right? You know, you just close the doors to the rooms that you don't want people to go into because they're messy. And it's like, I don't want you to see that. I want you to see the nice parts. So stay in the living room, stay in the kitchen, stay in the dining room. Like you That's what generally happens when you invite a guest into your house. But what Paul is saying is that when Jesus comes into your life, you aren't inviting him as a guest into your house. You aren't inviting him into your life. You're transferring ownership of your life to him. That he doesn't become a guest in your house. He becomes the owner of your house. You see, when Jesus comes into your life, he doesn't come to help you with your agenda. He actually comes to give you an entirely new agenda. And perhaps this is why for some of you, the Christian life just hasn't felt like it's been clicking. It feels like, it feels like there's just like something off. It's kind of like when you're driving a car and like a cylinder is broken or the spark plugs aren't working. Like there's just some misfiring going on. And maybe this is why for the Christian life, it just doesn't feel like it's clicking. Perhaps, perhaps, it's because you've been trying to make Jesus fit into your agenda. And you haven't recognized that when Jesus comes into your life, he doesn't come to be a guest, he comes to be king. So how should Christians live in society? We should live with respect toward authority and kindness towards all people. Why should Christians live this way in society? It's because you too were once an enemy of God and yet in his kindness, he saved you. And what gives us the power to live this way in society? Christians can live this way today because the regenerating power of the future kingdom lives in you 
right now. So for some of you, the question is, have you received this regenerating work of Christ in your life? Have you been made new? If not, the question is, what keeps you from being saved this morning? Turn from your sin. Turn from your sin that you think keeps you from God and turn from your self-righteousness that makes you think you don't need God. And turn to Christ. And for the Christian this morning, are you living with respect towards authorities and kindness towards all people? Remember who you were and remember who you are now. Remember who you were apart from Christ and remember who you are now in Christ. And would the present power of our future kingdom cause us to be a faithful people who are a faithful presence in the world today? Would the palingenesia that exists within us right now, the new creation and the kingship of Christ affect the way that we submit to rulers and show kindness towards all people. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, you are King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Oh, forgive us for treating you as a guest and not worshiping you as king, not submitting to you as king, and not honoring you as king as we respect earthly authorities and show kindness to all people. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would remind us again, give us fresh eyes, a fresh vision, a fresh joy of the regenerating work that you are doing in us as Christians. Oh, would we live faithfully in our society for your glory, for our good and the good of those around us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.